Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. You can make any deal look like a streamer by slapping $400 of rank growth on it and exiting at a four cap in five years from now. How believable and achievable those assumptions are is really where you know, kind of the, the rubber meets the road. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm happy today to have Nathan Clayberg with me. He's the Assistant Vice President at MLG Capital, which is a private real estate firm that has been in the industry for over 30 years and has over 22,000 multifamily units under management. Nathan, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thanks, Jim. Really excited to be here and uh, share a little bit about MLG and myself. Yeah, we're excited to hear it. And, And starting out, as you know, I'd like to find out, kind of hear about your journey, how you got into real estate, how you got to MLG, just kind of your your path to where you are now. If you start there, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, happy to. So I actually came straight into MLG and into real estate out of college. I uh, went to school at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, played football there and happened to become good friends and teammates with the CEO of MLG's son. So him and I were good friends. I was an accounting and finance major, actually no intention of being in real estate at all. But my friend's dad approached me and said, you should come work for me. And took a look at the company and what they were doing and it seemed like a good opportunity. So been here about three years now. I split my time working with our investors and then also working on our Midwest acquisitions. So we focus on a couple of different regions. That's mine. But yeah, it's been great. I've learned a ton. I really, you know, think MLG does things the right way. And so it's fun when I get to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's great that you are a young guy who's gotten into real estate so early. I majored in, in finance in college and and it took me 30 years to find real estate. So I'm, I think that's pretty exciting. So what did you think when you first got into it? You know, you said you're going to be accounting and finance. And then, I mean, there's a lot of accounting and finance in real estate, obviously. 
but are you investing on your own as well in real estate? Have you started, you know, amassing your own real estate assets? I have actually, which has been a really fun kind of stuff that I've been doing on the side. Own a couple single family home, duplex, triplex type properties. And then I'm looking with a friend at some other, maybe a little bit bigger deals, not MLG size, but for us, bigger deals. But it's been great. What's fun about real estate investing is, you know, I grew up in college learning about the kind of public markets is where you know, most finance at courses are focused. But there's always someone who knows more or who has access to more information than you do. Where in real estate, there's actually an ability to have a unique insight into a property or into a location or into a story of, of something. And, and so it feels like you can really actually have a little bit more inefficiencies in the real estate market. And so it's been fun watching that play out on larger level with MLG, but it's also been fun kind of diving into it on my own and starting to build my own portfolio. I think you nailed it, right? Because I cannot, if I want to invest in Apple, I can't call up Tim Cook and give him some advice, or I, I can't affect anything in that. Whereas if you're investing in real estate, you can control, if you're doing active real estate, like you're doing with your smaller single family duplexes, you can control every aspect of that because it's literally under your control. But even if you're investing in a syndication, you can still call up the head of the syndication who's running it and say, hey, I want to understand more about these numbers or why why you aren't up to pro forma, why you're exceeding pro forma, things like that. So I think you really nailed it that the even if you are completely passive, like most left field investors are, there is some element of control that you have with these type of investments. Right. That's exactly right. And if, even if you are passive, you can call up MLG or whoever you're investing with and you can hear the story of why this asset is a unique opportunity or a discovered inefficiency in a given market. And I don't, at least maybe I'm just not smart enough, but I don't know how to do that in the public markets because it is so efficient, right? There are so many smart people investing in those markets. It's built to be as efficient as possible. Real estate is a more fractured, fragmented industry overall. There's human error involved. And when you can find that, then there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The other thing I would say about the public markets is Apple could be having their best year ever. And if the market tanks, Apple's going down too, where that's another benefit of real estate. If the you know entire real estate market tanks, you still may have a single family home that's killing it. It just depends on how you manage the home. You can also do things, push the equity without even relying on the market. And so I think we're on the same page here that, uh, that the public markets are they're fine for some people, but that's not really where we want to be. Agreed. Absolutely. So I want to pivot here and, and talk a little bit about MLG. If you can kind of give us an overview. I know that you, one of the things unique to MLG, and a lot of people are kind of doing it now as well, is the fund model rather than a single asset model. So can you give us a little bit of background generally on MLG? And then I would like to dive into why a fund rather than single asset. Yeah. So um, MLG is a 34-year-old real estate investment company. We're headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I'm calling in from today. Uh, we have offices in Dallas, Texas, and Sarasota, Florida as well. You know, over the course of that 34 years, we've really been involved in every kind of angle of commercial real estate. Came up as a broker and development firm in southeastern Wisconsin. Was focusing on doing some acquisitions down in Dallas. Nowadays, we've moved more away from brokerage and development. We're focused pretty exclusively on acquisitions and then the corresponding management. We have about 23,000 apartment units 
down managed across the country. But we actually spent the first 20 years of the company's history doing syndications and just one-off deals. Had a lot of success doing it that way. We, we stand behind a really strong track record. You know, I, I may be getting a little ahead of the question, but the reason we, we moved to the fund was, you know, you see how crazy the market can be when you're taking on all single asset risk. There's really no inherent concept of diversification. And so many people, you know, especially before the days of crowdfunding and, you know, where everything was available online, they're just waiting for their local real estate friend to give them a call and say, I've got a deal usually in the same market that you live and you're not getting diversification at all. So launch the funds. And that's been the real goal is just trying to get our investors diversified and, and mitigate risk by spreading it out across a basket of assets. And how do the taxes work on that? You know, I know it's the, the federal taxes seem to be similar to a single asset deal because there's not anything special there. But if you're in multiple assets, in multiple states, there's state tax returns deals. And I know a lot of the states that people are investing in, uh, states that don't have income tax. But how does MLG work it? If Am I going to have to file? If you're in three states that you have to file tax returns, do, does the investor have to file a tax return in each one of those states? That's a really good question. So there are actually, we're currently on our fifth fund right now. It's a $350 million equity fund. However, there are two different entrance vehicles into this fund that actually have a different answer to that question. The first is a traditional LLC vehicle, so probably more similar to what people are used to in terms of how they're typically investing in syndications. LLC is a pass-through entity and allows for the depreciation expense generated by the properties to flow through to investors. We believe that that's a really powerful tax tool, especially for folks who are highly compensated and have some additional passive ordinary income. You can take the depreciation expense that we pass through. You can use it to offset and defer some passive ordinary income. That's a, that can be a powerful benefit. On that side of the fund, however, we are invested across multiple different states, typically probably call it 10 in a given fund. Two of them are Texas and Florida, which don't have state income tax, but you really could be looking at, you know, call it eight to 10 states that you would create an obligation to file additional taxes. And so, you know, if you're coming into our fund for the minimum of 50,000, that can be the additional tax prep cost can be a little bit burdensome on your overall return, but that cost is relatively fixed, right? So if you're coming in for five hundred thousand, your tax saving potential increases significantly, and your tax prep cost you know goes up, but by the same amount you would have if you invested fifty thousand, right? So yes, in the we call it our private fund, then yes, you you would create those multi-state tax filing obligations. The second option we call our dividend fund. It was actually incepted for folks looking to invest through their retirement vehicle, kind of trying to get diversified within their qualified holdings. But it also has a secondary benefit for folks looking to invest taxable dollars. We use a private non-traded REIT entity that's inserted between the investors and the properties. As cash flows up through the properties, it flows through this non-traded REIT. It's reclassified from passive rental income to dividend income. And that dividend income avoids a multi-state filing obligation. So you lose a little bit of the depreciation benefit because that's trapped at that REIT entity level. The REIT actually uses it on your behalf, but you avoid the headache of the multi-state filings. You're still getting tax-efficient distributions from us. And it can be a really great way to participate in our fund without adding complexity and, and additional tax prep burden. And how do people decide or how do you counsel them, I guess, both when you're Thinking about investing, how do I decide which route to go? 
That's a good question. I, I would say it's a function of three different things. The first is how much is your CPA going to charge you to file in additional states? Some CPAs I've, I've spoken with will say it's no big deal at all. Cost you an extra hundred bucks overall and, and we'll get it done. Some CPAs say it's, we're going to have to charge $200 per state of, of additional filing. So you got to get a sense of what the additional cost will be. And it's also probably worth discussing with your CPA what use would the depreciation be for you given your tax picture, right? If you're a real estate investor and you have significant other passive income that you're, you're paying taxes on, the depreciation that we're passing through, it comes to you in the form of a passive taxable loss on your K-1. It's not an actual loss, but it, it, it's accelerated into the first year and creates that. Those losses are super powerful if you've got other passive income. It can be used to wipe out your, your taxable income entirely for a period of time, which is a powerful tax tool, especially for folks who are taxed at a near 40%. That's, that's, you know, makes up for a lot of savings. But not everyone has passive ordinary income. Those losses are less useful for folks who, who don't have that in their tax picture. And then the last question is kind of what I alluded to earlier, is how much are you looking to invest, both now and over the course of the next couple of years? If you're thinking... You might want to ramp up over you know a period of time, get comfortable with you know a company like MLG and allocate you know two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars or more. Then it starts to make a lot of sense to be in the private fund. You pay a little bit more in tax prep, but long term, we think the savings that you're going to experience are going to outweigh those costs. But if you're going to come in for fifty thousand and that's what you want, you know your allocation to be, then it, it might make sense to be in the dividend fund where you're not having to, to worry about the multi-state filing. Okay. And if you're investing through a self-directed IRA, with the di- the dividend fund would be the option, the best option for you. Correct. And in, in in the in any sort of benefit plan investing, there's no multi-state filing or that issue is it goes away. So there there's nothing to worry about there. I want to go back to the fund model. So the fund will be open for some period of time. I'd like to hear about that, but also. Do people time it? Is it better to invest early in the fund or late in the fund? And you know, if you're doing cost segregation and bonus depreciation, how is that applied to early and late investors? And that's kind of three questions rolled up into one. I apologize for that. That's kind of I just kind of want to understand how it how it works with the timing of the investment. Because if I invest and you already purchase two buildings, do I get the cost segregation and the bonus from that or not? And can you kind of talk about how all that works? Yeah, absolutely. So first, we'll, let's just talk about the life cycle of our fund, kind of how, how that process works. There's really kind of distinct phases that the fund will go through as it moves through its life. The first is just the fundraising period. And so typically, we raise our, our funds in a period of 18 to 24 months. From there, we close the fund to new investors. We raise and deploy capital simultaneously. So as we're raising money, we're kind of filling the queue and then back, you know, but closing on properties and calling that capital in. For the first five years after the fundraising period, we're able to make new investments. From that, after that five-year period expires, then all additional proceeds or liquidity events must be returned to investors. The business deal we have with folks is that you come into our fund, once your capital is called, you begin accruing an 8% preferred return. That number is accrued and compounded. So in the early quarters, when we're buying assets, we're, we're always buying with a strategy to grow the operating income over time. We're not going to be paying an 8% right away. That's just not really realistic in a heavy multifamily fund and with where cap rates are today. But typically, we'll pay out in kind of the 4 to 6% range. 
However, you accrue to an eight. So say we pay a five, that 3% difference is still owed to you. And that 3% earns 8% compounded interest until we make you whole. So that's our first obligation to investors. Once we've got the 8% preferred return, we begin the next phase, which is a full return of capital. So investors get 100% of the cash flow until they have 8%. Then they get 100% of the cash flow until they have all their original capital back, which we would target to be in roughly six to eight years from fund inception. Once we have investors have the 8% and all their money back, then we enter into the, the profit sharing phase where investors get 70% of the remaining cash flow and MLG gets 30%. And, and so in theory, the way this is structured is to have MLG's interest be taken care of last, make sure the investors get the first two bites at the apple. And then if, if there's additional profit, we participate in that. So that's kind of the, the general how we're operating, how we're structured. In terms of when to come into the fund, it really does depend on what your objectives are as an investor. There's actually I would say pros to both sides. If you come in early to the fund, you accrue your 8% preferred return longer, right? So unless you've got another place that you can park cash and accrue 8%, that's a pretty attractive option. The other benefit of coming into the fund early is that you get your your early year tax write-off sooner. You we always allocate your share of the losses from the from the cost segregation bonus depreciation in the year in which you invest. Future year investors get the bulk of the, the benefit in future years. We use what's called the target allocation method to allocate depreciation to investors, which is really meant to align your total benefit of the depreciation expense with your proportionate share of at-risk capital. So in the first year, you get yours, you get, we estimate roughly 60% of what you invest comes back to you in the form of a passive taxable loss. That is really front-loaded into the first year the guy who comes in next year will get the bulk of the loss that year. So from a time value of money standpoint, if you've got you know taxable passive income in this calendar year, it can make a lot of sense to get in as soon as possible and get the write-off for that income. Some folks like the idea of coming in at the end of the fundraising period. In theory, it's remember it's six to eight years from fund inception that we're targeting to return capital. So your cash will be tied up for a shorter period of time you have a little bit more visibility into the assets in the fund because of the time and because you're buying in, in theory, a little bit of a discount because you're still buying in at par. You can experience a slightly higher IRR by coming in at the end of the fundraising period. However, folks who come in at the beginning generally have a little bit higher multiple because they've been accruing the 8% receiving distributions longer. So if you're looking for as short of a lockup as possible, come in at the end of the fund. If you're looking for a longer term solution, I'd say, you know, consider coming at the beginning. Yeah, that, that was really well explained. Thank you for that. But I, I want to go back to how the payouts work in the fund. So you said you get the cash flow, let's say you're getting cash flow up to 8%, right? We've gotten past the part where it's, it's lower and you've, you've paid back all the cash flow. Then the next amount that you get back is return of capital. So let's say that you are earning 10%, right? So let's say the fund's returning 10%. So that first 8% would be return on capital, right? And it's going in my pocket. And then the next 2% would be return of capital. So you're taking the cash flows and returning capital until we're all paid back before disposition of assets. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. In theory, what you're describing is true. Now, in a, again, a heavy multifamily fund, multifamily tends to have a, a significant portion of the return come from appreciation. And so 
really the, the cash or the return of capital tends to come more substantially when we're selling assets or when we're refinancing assets and creating liquidity events. As we as the fund matures, it does exceed the 8% overall return, and then that cash is returned to investors overall. But the, the real strategy of it would be that we create liquidity and then we'll return capitals in chunks. So when our investors get distributions, they'll actually be broken out in their distribution statement saying, this portion of it is your 8% preferred return. This portion of it is a return of your original capital. And what differentiates MLG from a lot of groups is say we you know, bought an asset at the beginning of the fund for $20 million and we sell it you know, three years later for $40 million. A lot of groups are able to reach in at that point and pull out their piece of the profits. They, they can capitalize on their promote at that time. The entire $20 million of profit in that scenario goes back to the investor within our structure and it incentivizes us to finish the fund all the way through the end. Hey, Left Builders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You know, in our community, we've been talking a little bit about return of capital versus return on capital, and everybody does it a little bit differently. And in my opinion, I like getting return of capital for my cash flows and a return on capital for my cash flows and return of capital is kind of what I expect. Like you said, that's from refinances or or major capital events. So that, that seems to make sense to me. Can you talk a little bit about what type of assets go into these fund, the fund? We don't promise any sort of specific asset allocation overall. We, we say we're going to do the smartest, the 30 to 35 smartest real estate deals we can find in a given period of time. Now, we have a very, very heavy bias towards multifamily. That tends to make up historically around 80 to 85% of the overall investments that we make. We also really like industrial. That's a very competitive space right now. But so the reason we like both of those is because the supply and demand story, you know, both macroeconomically and if you dive into specific submarkets, is very intact. We we really tend to focus on that, and they're both relatively low capex businesses as compared to office and retail, which we will invest in. We view office and retail more as merchant buyers, where we're looking to get in, find a problem in a good location that we can buy at a really cheap price fix the problem and get out right away. We don't we don't want to hold those long term because when tenants leave and the the turn costs to backfill tenants in office and in retail are so high, we don't think the market accurately prices those into valuation. So some people see that and say, oh, I can get a higher cap rate, but we don't think that it's worth the additional risk of trying to backfill those tenants, especially because cut construction costs have been unpredictable. So how it ends up shaking out is multifamily tends to be around 80 to 85%. Industrial, we love to have be 5 to 10% of the fund. And then the last sliver will be retail and office typically, if, if at all. And then shifting from, from what you guys are doing, can you talk a little bit about how someone, because you, you talk to investors all the time. So as a new investor or even an experienced investor, how would you vet a sponsor to make sure that you're interests are aligned because at left field investors, 
we talk about you got to have this, the right sponsor or nothing else matters. So that's really the most important thing. And then you look at the market and then you look at the deal. So how would you recommend to investors? How do they how do they make sure that partnering with MLG or whatever syndicator they're talking to is, is the right one to partner with? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I would always encourage people to, as much as you're able, get on the phone with someone. You're not, maybe not face-to-face, but at least hearing their voice asking them direct questions, getting a sense for if they're prioritizing relationships with their investors. The the second thing that I would ask for is to, to have some, take a look at their track record. Some groups will be really transparent with that. Like if you ask me that question, I'll send you a summary deal by deal of every deal that MLG has ever bought and sold. Then you can you can take a look at that and, and really you know dive into the numbers if you want. But it's important to know how groups have managed through a period of time, especially going through different cycles in the market. If someone started a company in 2014 and they haven't made great return investing in real estate, that's a real problem because it's hard not to make money in the last you know, five, 10 years. But over a course of a period of you know, 20 or 30 years, you can really get a sense of if a group's strategy actually holds up through different market cycles. And then the last thing, and actually this might be the most important, is getting a sense for what type of reporting the sponsor uh, is going to provide and what type of communication you can expect. I've heard t- so many horror stories of people who will make an investment with a group and they don't hear anything, they don't see anything, you know, they might get a check every quarter or whatever, but they don't know what's going on. I just really don't think that that's a, a, an efficient way or appropriate way to handle people's money. So I would ask, you know, for an example of the quarterly reports, I would ask to see you know, what kind of insight you'll have on a quarterly or monthly basis. And then combining all those three things together, I think you can actually have a pretty good sense of, is this a group that you're willing to trust with your money? Because that's, I mean, that's really what you're doing, right? It's looking to find a way to build trust. We're maybe not going to get to sit down face to face, but you can at least look at some of these other things. Yeah, I, th- I think that you, you nailed that too. I mean, the um, in our community, we look at experience and we don't want to exclude somebody who's new but you know experience has a has a huge weight because you're right the last 5 years almost anyone could make money in in real estate so you really want to see okay how do they do when when things get difficult and then reporting and communication are critical you know i have a couple of syndications where i i can't get a hold of anybody and i'm not getting distributions and it's just it's really frustrating and so even if they come back at the end and it's and it was a great deal and they send me you know double my money back or whatever I'm not reinvesting with them again because the process was just too frustrating and not knowing what's going on just is not acceptable. So, you know, I think you really, you really nailed that. So another thing that we do at Left Field Investors is we're kind of trying to make shortcuts for people so they don't have to learn all the lessons that, that some of us did, right? So they can learn those lessons from us rather than investing in some syndications that maybe don't pan out or don't have the right communication. So if you're talking to or mentoring some new passive investors, what kind of shortcuts or ideas you could give them so that they they don't make some of the mistakes that others have made? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think a part of my answer will be influenced by, you know, I believe in what we do here. And I think the, probably the first and most important thing you can do is get some diversification. Putting all your eggs in one basket is a quick way to have a painful and expensive lesson. But spreading that risk around a few different investments makes some some sense in my mind. And that's like less related to, you know, specifically to real estate, but just investing overall is that diversification is a good thing. I would say the second thing I would say 
is be very, very wary of how, how the deal is being capitalized. And if they're using significant amounts of debt, that is the quickest way to add risk into a deal is by getting over your skis from a leverage standpoint. So, you know, at MLG, we focus pretty moderate leverage, 60 to 65% loan to cost. For us, the reason we do that is you, we know you can produce higher returns if you use more leverage and that debt is available in the marketplace, but your risk increases with your return significantly. And for our investors, it's not worth the additional couple basis points of return that you might be able to squeeze out by levering up to take on all that extra risk. You know, we, we look at for the last, for example, the last 18 months with COVID and, and what an uncertain time that was in the market. Because of our leverage point, we were able, you know, we ran kind of the stress test in our portfolio and we saw we can afford to lose roughly 30 to 35% of our revenues before we even have to dip into our operating reserves, which are also substantial, right? That's because we're low leverage, we're well capitalized at these properties. The way people get in trouble is your 85% leverage or whatever the case may be, a COVID type event happens and suddenly it's, you don't have a lot of cushion before you can't pay the bills, right? So I, I think those two things are, are probably the best way to avoid you know, mistakes. And then I think your advice was really good. Focus on investing with a group that with the sponsor first and, and whoever you're partnering with. If you're not a professional expert investor in real estate, partner with someone who is. Right. And that, that's another thing that we really focus on is using your network to find those syndicators. And, you know, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I really concentrate on the sponsors that I'm going to invest with are ones that are referred to me by somebody that I already know, like, and trust. Because there are a lot of, you know, we talk about it all the time. There's a lot of podcasters and advertisers and marketers out there who are syndicators, and you don't know which one comes first. And some are good at both, but some are just marketers, right? So you really want to pick a syndicator who, you know, knows what they're doing and is, and is their business is syndicating, not marketing. And, and I think a good way to kind of sift through that is to use other people, use your network, use your community to find sponsors, to find investments and, and things like that. So moving to a, a deal, can you talk about, and mostly multifamily is what I'm talking about here, but kind of two or three of the most important deal metrics, specific metrics on a deal that a passive investor should be looking at? Because I don't want to go and re-underwrite the deal from the start. That's your job. I'm a passive person in, in the investing world. And I just want to look at the, the overview and say, okay, here's, here's a couple of things that I need to concentrate on. Can you give us a couple of examples of things that, that you think are important to look at and what those metrics might be? Yeah, that's a good question. I think actually the first thing if I was investing in a deal I would look at is the location. I would just go ahead and take a look. Okay, where is this asset? Where is it at relative to where all the employers are? What school districts it in? What is the general demographic in terms of you know home values? Go on Zillow, look at the home values around your asset. Look at you know if you have access to income information. Try and get a sense of who and like what is this location that I'm investing in, and then as a very second follow up to that question, I'd say, at what price am I acquiring it? A lot of people get really really focused on the cap rate, which there's certainly merit to to looking at the cap rate, but especially in a cycle or a point in the cycle we're in right now, where it's mature, we're maybe seeing some potential inflation. It's very important to be conscious of basis in your investment. And so I would I would compare that with 
okay, I'm buying this apartment unit for 120 or 120 a unit. How does that compare to home values? And how much do I have to sell it for in order to achieve the pro forma that I'm looking at in front of me? And then, so once you have a sense of this is the location, do I believe it long term? This is the price I'm buying it. This is the price I have to sell it at. Then I'm going to look at what are the assumptions I have to make in order to achieve this pro forma. You can make any deal look like a screamer by slapping $400 of rank growth on it and exiting at a four cap, you know, five years from now. How believable and achievable those assumptions are is really where, you know, kind of the, the rubber meets the road. So I like to look at the location and I say, okay, this pro forma suggests that I need to grow the average rent by $200 a month over the course of the next five years. I might pull up a couple different properties and see, okay, well, you know, how does our rents today compare to theirs? And if I think that that's a, an achievable metric, or if there's something kind of more macroeconomically going on, like Apple's building a, a new headquarters right next door, you know, that, that helps me get comfortable with that investment. But at the end of the day, underwriting and, and investing in real estate is all about identifying critical assumptions, determining if they're believable and achievable. I think the two I focus on the most are basis, exit basis, and then the rank growth assumption. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense to me. So this has been great. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. The last question I always ask is, what's a good podcast that you like to listen to? Prefer real estate, but if you got something else too, you can add that in also. That's a good question. So I, I one of the things I like about what we do here is we're, we're pretty tax focused. And I've had a really good time listening to a podcast called The Real Estate CPA. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's yeah. actually probably more geared for folks who are looking to do some stuff on their own. There's a lot of different kind of tips and tricks of how you can, you know, maximize the tax benefit of your you know, one-off investments. So I've, I've enjoyed that a lot. It is real estate, but it's also kind of some accounting stuff. So it might be a little nerdy, but it's 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 good stuff. And I've enjoyed that one. That's great. I, I love that you um, pick accounting podcast as the exciting one. I mean, that, that just makes, makes me and probably our listeners want to invest with you guys because we got a a nerdy accountant who's looking after our investment. That's uh, that's exactly what you want. <laughs> that's fantastic. The funny thing is I I like the accounting side, but some of the folks on our team here, we've got nine CPAs on staff and our, our CEO is a former accounting guy. So he'll just, you know, nothing makes his eyes light up like a, a good tax strategy. It's pretty funny stuff. That's great. You know, I always say in investing, boring is better and uh, accounting is boring, but you know, it's pretty important because that's how you make the money. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah. I don't know if there's a way I can send you my email, Jim, and, and you can send it around. Happy to, to respond to emails, yeah. hop on a phone call. You can just go to our website, mlgcapital.com. You can schedule a call directly with me there or with any of, anyone else on our team. Heard from me if you'd like to hear from someone else. and Happy to do that. That's what we spend a lot of our time doing. And, and we're looking to build long-term relationships with you. So please reach out if you have more questions. Excellent. I'll put your email in the in the show notes for sure, as well as your uh, the website address. So thank you again for being on the podcast. This was great. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everybody. It was a very interesting conversation with Nathan today. MLG uses a very unique way to avoid the uh, Problem. One of the problems with funds is investing in funds is filing in the state tax returns, and everyone wants to avoid that. Well, they, they offer a way to do that through this dividend fund that turns it into a private, non-traded REIT. But it gives you the option. You could do one or the other, or probably 
a little bit of both. So you do lose some of the depreciation benefits with the um, doing the dividend, but you don't have all of those state taxes. So also I think investing on the back end where you already know maybe where most of the assets are and what states they're in can help you with that decision. I also thought it was interesting the timing that he's talking about is if you invest early, get more distributions and therefore a higher multiple than if you invest late, but you're gonna get a higher IRR investing later uh, because they refi and get your capital back quicker. So you can kind of balance which one you wanna go to and, and how you wanna do that. I also like, you know, when we're talking about screening the sponsors, he talked about the importance of reporting. And we've talked about that a little bit before, communication and reporting, but he was really stressing the um, comprehensive reporting is important because you need to know how your asset is performing. So I appreciated the conversation with Nathan and uh, we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.